another episode of TPA Tidbits, a Sentinel Pension podcast. Um, my name is Melissa Torito. Woo! I've been on vacation for a couple of weeks. My name is Melissa Torito. I'm the host and creator of this podcast. And today we have a fabulous guest. Her actual name is Jennifer Wazinski. Say that five times fast. But her name within our office is OJ, and we'll explain a little bit of a backstory that has nothing to do with what she actually does for a living. It's just her name. <laughs> Thanks, OJ, for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's always exciting to join you on another wonderful podcast. So, little backstory on you. Where Can you tell our audience where you're from? I am originally from uh, Greenfield, Wisconsin, which is a little suburb of Milwaukee, um, and I went to college in Minnesota. I lived in Minnesota for 18 years after living in Wisconsin for 18 years. And then I moved to Louisiana in 2015 and went to law school here at Southern University Law Center. And I've been here ever since. And you went to law school after working for how many years? I mean, you're still working, but I was you say, were working for a long time and then you decided to go to law school, correct? Right. I started in this industry in two thousand in the retirement industry in 2004. Uh, so I started law school in 2017. So 13 years before I went to law school, I was a enrolled retirement plan agent before I went to law school for nine. You can tell why I went to law school and not became a CPA or an actuary. Math is hard. <laughs> math, is, math is hard. So I was, I was in Irpa for at least seven, eight years before I went to law school. Okay. And just in case it, the listeners are not able to piece this together, uh, Jennifer went back to law school with a goal of graduating law school, passing the bar, all the things that attorneys do that I don't know, and specializing in, as an ERISA attorney in retirement plan issues. Right. So... Yes, it was my intention to continue working in the retirement industry after graduating law school. The one thing that I don't think a lot of people understand about law school is that it's very hard to specialize. There are only a few subsections where you can specialize in a, in a certain line. Um, because, I definitely did not know that. Did you know that, Um. It doesn't surprise me, but I don't know if I knew that. Okay. I, I have some friends that are in law school now. I hear what they talk about. Oh, for the listeners, Lainey is our producer. <laughs> I don't know if I've ever talked on this one. I don't know if she's ever talked on this one, <laughs> but she does talk on Louisiana Ladies or the podcast. So clearly, I just wanted to bring her in. Thank you, Lainey. Okay, go ahead. I really didn't realize that. I kind of thought you went to law school and maybe at some point you picked a specialty, almost like a doctor, for lack of better words. I, went, I never knew how that worked. Okay, this is great. You only have three years in law school. So your first year... Yeah, but three years seems like a really long time for law school. When you're in it, <laughs> yes. Now that I'm out, I was... I find myself thinking I could have definitely had another year, two years um, before really feeling comfortable in certain things. But yeah, you, you basically spend your first two years, well, your first year, you can't even take any electives. They tell you everything that you can take. Your second year, you can take some electives. And is your schedule dictated for you? Like you Your really first year, work. yes. Um, I actually heard from a friend whose son is going to Southern right now. And they are dictating their first and second year schedules now, uh, which is interesting because you have some electives you can take your second year. But, you know, like with everything, there's shortages in uh, adjunct professors and all that. So, yeah, I mean, you could kind of tailor your uh, your law school education a little bit, but really kind of only in certain aspects like 
you could focus more on criminal trial prep. You could focus more on transactional uh, contracts. The patent bar is something they really push in law school. But if you wanted to go to law school, out of my initial um, class, which we ended up graduating, I think there was 101 people. We started out almost 200. I was the, yeah, you, you have massive attrition in law school, especially the first year, even like the first two weeks, you, you just see it dwindling down. If you graduate with 50% of what you started, that's, that's pretty that's good. Is this because it's just not what people think it is? Because I mean, you've passed it's the LSAT. it's hard. Well. You passed the LSAT, right? I mean. Yes. You don't, like, yeah, you can't get into law school without, so you without passing the LSAT. You had to take a test to you get had into to take law a test. school and two weeks into it. Oh, yeah. like, oh, this, I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. I mean, oh. it's. Okay. Law school is your, the first year is a lot of just, for lack of a better term, it's just hazing. It's. The professors are going to give you so much more than you can really do. And surviving law school isn't about being the smartest person. It's really not because I'm nowhere near the smartest person in my class. What to be successful in law school, my, my uncle gave me this advice really early on. He's a physician. He said, you need to study every single day. Day puts time in. Yep. Mm -hmm. You set aside the same amount of time to do your homework every single day and you just do that. And if you do that, you will be fine. So those of us who had the ability to organize and time manage, and also to a certain extent, be able to look at something and say, I may not get this done, but it's not going to affect my grade significantly enough that it's worth the expenditure of time and stress. So crisis management and time management were really what made you successful in law school. Not just being the smartest person in the room. Sounds like these are great lessons for the real world and when you yes. get into well, the real world. And that's another problem with law school. I mean, because they always ask you, what are what are you going to law school for? And they, you know, you have your normal cross-section. I'm going to be a defense attorney. I'm going to exonerate. I'm going to work for the Innocence Project. I'm going to save the whales. I'm going to save the environment, which are all great things. And they need to happen. But they are not necessarily realistic. If you go to law school and you know exactly where you're going to work and exactly what you're going to do when you are done and you can manage your time and crisis manage, you will be successful. If you go to law school and you have no idea what you're going to do when you get out and why you're going to do it or you think you're going to you know, be a defense attorney, you're going to be working at the public defender's office for forty-five dollars to $50,000 a year. You're going to be working 100 hours a week and you're going to have six figures worth of law of student loans. That is not a sustainable life. And... We see massive attrition in the legal community. And if what you don't see in attrition, you see in alcoholism. Oh, wow. This is definitely educational for me. Uh, because, you know, as a CPA, it's more, there's not a specific school to go and take, you know, it's right. a test. Um, I always joke kind of the same thing. I'm not the smartest tool in the shed. So, I mean, I'm intelligent, but... If you take me and all the other CPA exam candidates, there are people that are far smarter than me, mm -hmm. and it was put, it's putting the time in. It's it's making sacrifices. I hate to say that. It is. We're all about balance, but you got to make sacrifices because that's short-lived, right? You make yes. sacrifices, you know that's short-lived. Okay. So I've always kind of wondered this. Mm. So, you know, we get asked, at having Jennifer, Jennifer and I met. Right before I started law school. Right before she started law school. Two, two, 2016. 
2016. So we've known each other for six March, years. She's filling in the blanks there. And uh, I'm like, I feel like I haven't, I mean, I've done this for 13 years. So I've known you for almost, we're at half the time that I've been doing this. So, um, so Jennifer is, um, you know, there's certain questions that we get asked from clients and advisors, you know, that definitely crosses the line of, uh, advice or whatever that I would say falls under the category, I should say of legal advice. And so for me and my business and for our clients, Jennifer is a great, I'm saying resource, but she's a great professional to have as an ERISA attorney. I love being able to say, I know an ERISA attorney. I feel like you're a dime a dozen. There's not that many ERISA attorneys. No, they're specializing. Yeah. It's, it's a, to completely specialize in this area, especially coming straight out of law school is going to be hard. Because you're going to have come out, you're not going to know anything about it. And ERISA is huge. I mean, ERISA covers retirement plans. It covers labor, you know, employment law. So in a in big law, going into a law firm, you're not going to be just retirement plans. You're going to know a little of this, a little health and welfare. So I did the reverse. Yeah. I learned the industry and then I went to law school. And it gives you a very different perspective Um from a number of, of areas. I mean, from a business standpoint, you know, there are times where attorneys, we have to say, we have to say certain things, you know, we, we have to, when giving advice, we have to be cognizant of what we're doing. And I think if you were just, if you had only worked as an attorney and I, I use that language specifically because it's really easy to become this thing. I work as an attorney. I am not like my identity is not tied to being an attorney. Mm -hmm. And that, that is also, you know, part of, part of the issue. But when you were something other than an attorney first, you know that your clients have other things that they have to deal with that you can take into account, but still do your job. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I know that my client who I'm negotiating an IRS sanction with right now, could we continue to fight to lower the sanction? We could, but I also know his business demographics. I know what he's up against. And I know that to continue to do that is counterproductive. You're just paying me. You might lower the sanction, but you also have to take into account what you're paying me to do that. So there's a point where you have to... Diminishing returns. Yeah, you, you really have to be able to have that conversation with the client. Uh, I mean, I feel like you probably have to have a lot of tough conversations. And uh, my favorite phrase as a professional CPA is to tell somebody that they need to seek legal counsel. <laughs> and I yes. am not an attorney. So this is what I think that, you know, so, you know, we've got recommendations. So so for somebody to call themselves an ERISA attorney, is there a, are there actual... <laughs> qualifications for that or is it no. just experience no and that's like a personal that's like a massive pet peeve for me <laughs> um especially having gone into gone into law after you know as an ERPA um we were I, let's actually yeah. let's back up really quick okay so ERISA we're using all these acronyms yes. this is what we do so ERISA is the Employee Retirement Income Security Act of 1974 and an ERPA which I just think some of the acronyms in the retirement are terrible. are so funny yeah. ERPA Okay, what's an ERPA? Enrolled Retirement Plan Agent. All right, so that's Jennifer. You took a test, a hard test, to get that yeah. designation, right? Yeah, it was actually the the ERPA test, which came out somewhere between 2008 and 2010. The, those years were fuzzy for me. Mm-hmm. 
So it, it I know it was in that area. Um, it, those were harder tests than the ASPA certified pension consultant exams in a lot of ways. And it was a two part test. And I was one of those really smart people that took them back to back. Like I took one one day and one the next day. That was really smart. Um, not so much, but, uh, it, it was a great idea. I, I thought it was one of the times that the IRS and the industry sat down and said, this was actually a really good idea. They created a niche for people who knew the retirement industry really, really well, but were not a CPA, an actuary, and an attorney. These are people that can get power of attorney mm-hmm. from the plan or the client and represent them in front of the IRS. Revolved retirement plan agents were given that same level, but only for the retirement plan itself. So they couldn't provide representation to the actual employer. But it opened up the ability for employers to get reasonably priced services for determination letters, for audits, and for corrections. It was a really great idea, but unfortunately, um, it does appear that we are now unicorns. ERPAs are now unicorns because that... Uh, designation was discontinued. Yes, because they, you can't take a test. You can't. You cannot. You cannot do it anymore. Yeah. And we're just gonna. I'm just gonna leave my personal opinions out of right. this. <laughs> so, uh, I have found in, you know, like I said, I've been doing this for 13 years. I was about to say almost 13 years, but I've definitely passed up my 13 year anniversary in the beginning of June. That, and maybe it's just because I'm involved in more things because I'm the business owner. I'm not really sure. I just feel like. The regulations are continuing to become complicated. There's probably more investigations now than before. I'm not sure if clients have become more cognizant of the rules or let me say it like this. We've had more special type projects for clients that we're not technically the third party administrator on. And I want to say more, I'm like, you know, five to seven a year, but that's still like somebody has looked at the plan. Well, Sometimes I think it can be succession, right? So business owner, then somebody new comes in, they look at the plan. We all know how that can happen. And they're like, this isn't right. Whatever it may be. I would say following the terms of the plan document and remitting timely contributions are still the the, the big ones out there. But, you know, I think sometimes people, especially depending on, you know, business owners, I personally think every business owner should have a really good attorney, whether it's an ERISA attorney or not, but you should have a good attorney, just like you should have a good CPA and you should probably have a really good therapist. Mm-hmm. Agreed. I 100% agree. Personal opinion. But, you know, I, I have found that there are certain things that your TPA can do that don't require an attorney. But then mm-hmm. there's certain times where we have to say, we need to get an attorney involved. So I guess just kind of walk us through some of those scenarios. I mean, I can sit here and tell you when I call you, but I'm, you know, you deal with a lot of other stuff. So I guess, you know, what are you seeing from what services are you providing? Because ultimately I'm pretty sure when you get called in, it's not to sign something and like sign off on a plan that's just been operating in compliance for 10 years. It is literally to fix something. No, my, uh, uh, my boyfriend and I were having this conversation this weekend on who has the more depressing job and he's a criminal prosecutor and, and I do this. So in the end, like he wins just on like shared depressedness. But no, I do. ERISA attorneys do not generally get called in when things are good. Um, I would say my role is typically a blend of emotional support animal and crisis manager. Um, I don't know that... In investigations are increasing per se. 
uh, I remember when I first started, there were a lot more IRS audits. Okay. There was a lull of audits for a while, or at least in certain areas. Right now, I am seeing an uptick in audits out of California. Interesting. Yeah, I don't know why. The Department of Labor, I have seen a diversification of what they're looking at. Before it was, okay, we're going to come in, we're going to do a DOL investigation. Now they're becoming very specific in what they're looking at. And they seem to be a little more proactive. They'll say, hey, it, it looks like you might not have remitted your deferrals timely. Have you used our voluntary fiduciary correction program? We highly recommend you do that. And hey, if you do, let us know. Yeah. And we won't, uh, you know, they don't say it, but implicitly is the, and then we won't audit you. Right. So um, I I have a, a mix of TPAs who find issues. And like you say, a lot of that is succession. They switch TPAs. And depending on the TPA service model, the TPA may just say, okay, well, you've got this and you've got some issues and figure it out. an attorney. A lot of them just be like, figure it out. Oh. Yeah. And then you have, I have a few, most of my clients obviously are TPAs like you, where you look at things and go, you really need, you really need a a specialist in this. Here's who we recommend. And then that's usually when I get called in. Mm -hmm. And then I'll, I'll just have, you know, random shelter puppies dropped off at my door who have gotten, you know, like an IRS audit or something. Um, and you somehow get referred. And like, yes, sort of weird. It, every once in a while, you just get really weird ones. And I would say only a small percentage of my practice is actually really proactive employers. You know, I, I recently got a client who is looking at their fiduciary responsibilities and from their in regards to their investments, and they're really committed to it. I mean, to the point where they are looking at their underlying participants' portfolios, and if they are not performing well, they're going to their participants and saying, hey, what can we do to make it better? Those are my minority. Those are like five. That's my minority. Right. That's like 5%. But yeah, typically you're getting brought in, someone's found an issue, they've gotten a notice from someone, or they've ignored many, many notices from the IRS or the Department of Labor, which that's my personal favorite. I, I I guess I was just raised where if a multi-letter governmental organization sends you a letter that says deficiency or late penalty or you have an issue, it was, you know, bludgeoned into us that, that that's panic moment. Yes. I've literally had people ignore years of those notices. And I... I wish I just had that level of, I just don't care. Right. uh, (laughs) I mean, so, and you know, I will say that, uh, some people don't care. I do think that sometimes it's just a lack of awareness from a business owner as to like, they know that there's rules, right? but they're not exactly sure what the rules are because look, I wouldn't have a job if the rules were easy. Right. I know this. Um, and, and sometimes we get a little pushback of what's, what they need to do and what they want to do. And those might be two different things, you know, but I I have personally found that whenever I start to throw out the probably two most important acronyms, I don't know if important, but scariest acronyms of IRS and DOL, 
you know, and that, hey, yes, we're going to need to pay an ERISA attorney, but I can almost guarantee, which that's a scary word, word, but almost guarantee that your fees to pay the ERISA attorney are going to be less than if you get audited. You know, and sometimes, and sometimes... It, On your have, own, yeah, yeah, from a sanctioned standpoint, because... Yeah. If you're, especially from the IRS. And it depends upon the correction, too. I mean, it depends yes. upon the error. You've, you've come back and said before, this is not significant, whatever it was, this yeah. is not significant. I would self-correct. You know, there is a self-correction program, and I think that having you as guidance is, I, I feel like you're, I mean, obviously, you're honest and authentic as an attorney, right? So you could probably file any mistake through the voluntary correction program and pay this fee, but some some are okay to self-correct. Right. And there's there's guidance on that. And that actually brings up a really good point. Um, and this is where, like you were saying, the regulations have gotten more complicated and why I I never recommend going through an IRS audit alone because it, or a Department of Labor audit, but really an IRS audit because if they find errors in the audit, they're going to sanction you. But you have the ability to correct certain errors under self-correction, mm-hmm. which should then minimize the sanction. Mm-hmm. This is where the expertise comes into play. And it's the sanction, I'm not the sanction is basically the penalty correct. for your errors. And that yes. could be, is that just up to the IRS agent? Not necessarily, no, it's not, it, it is not a discretionary okay. amount. It's based on the maximum, maximum applicable penalty, maximum Maximum penalty amount. This sad. I just did this. I should know this off the top of my head. But basically, it is the total amount of taxes, penalties, and interest that the IRS could have gotten had those assets not been in the plan. Gotcha. And the way the process normally works is typically they send you what they have calculated as the maximum penalty amount. And they say, okay, your penalty is 100% of this amount, which is typically like 100% of assets Mm -hmm. and interest. So. Because those are pre-tax dollars. Correct. Yeah. So people panic. And then it's a negotiation. That would panic. Oh, exactly. Yeah. And then it's a negotiation. Well, if you if you know that, okay, well, I had this, I had these three errors. They were all considered insignificant under self-correction. So my my penalty really shouldn't, you know, this it shouldn't be this high. It really should just be a small percentage of assets. Then you can have that negotiation. But if if you're a dentist, how do you even start to have, that's, that's the point of legal representation. I understand, or even just an enrolled retirement plan agent, somebody who knows these rules. Mm -hmm. And this is my quick soapbox on attorneys. You do not go to your general practitioner. If you have a heart attack, you go to a cardiologist Yes, they are both doctors. Do not get an attorney who does not specialize in what you need them to do. Just because they can do it doesn't mean they should do it. I love my boyfriend. He is a wonderful prosecutor. I would never let him read a contract for me. That's not not because he's not because he's a bad attorney. It's not a specialty. It's not a specialty. He yeah. needs to put away bad guys. You know, so you do not go to a divorce attorney for ERISA stuff. Right. Mergers and acquisitions. That's another huge one. That's where my brain was going, Jennifer. Mergers and acquisition attorneys are 
really good at what they do. Mm-hmm. And they have to know the intricacies of the business and the business transaction. But the one thing that they do not think about and is never, almost never, an important part of the negotiation is the retirement plan. Up front. Up front. It's never an important part. I will say, almost, I mean, 98% of the time. But we find out after the fact. I have a. I will have a call tomorrow with a merger and acquisition attorney on a acquisition that is closing June 30th. It is the 27th of June. Yep. This is not the ideal time to be having hey, this discussion. at least it's before. I know. Technically, it's you are correct. Technically, it's before. But already in the 72 hours since I started the discussions with the client, the what they were going to do with the plan has from Friday, from Thursday night to Saturday morning, the plan has already changed. Oh, yeah. We're working through a couple right now. I mean, just like brand new ones. So that would be, you know, this unsolicited advice that I'm going to give everyone is if you, and we're seeing mergers and acquisitions as we are because the baby boomers are retiring. We've mm-hmm. just been through a pandemic. I think some people are like, Screw it. I'm just going to sell my business, you yes. know? Um, so we're seeing that. So, yes, have, have this will be my recommendation. Have an attorney that drafts the purchase agreement that specializes in that. They're mm-hmm. going to know, like you said, all the intricacies. But in that section for the retirement plan, I would recommend, you correct me if I'm wrong, I see a lot of the purchase agreements that just lump in benefit plans. Yep. And it just says benefit plan. And it's the same canned language same can used language. in every single kind, which I get it, you know, like as attorneys, we got a ton of stuff to do. So when you find some good language, like you hold on to yeah. that. And it's the language, good language is not necessarily no. wrong. It's just not specific. Exactly. Enough. And if you have a, if you have an asset sale, this is. It's this, really the asset sale. It's the asset the sale. ones that seem to be, right, Lainey? I'm learning all kinds of stuff. <laughs> so for the asset sale, for any of you merger and acquisition attorneys who may be listening to this, and you can all be mean to me later, and honestly, I'm not going to care. If you have a asset sale and there is a retirement plan, if you do not specifically mention in the purchase agreement what is going to happen to that plan, that plan stays with the seller. It is not considered a bundled part of the asset. It has to be separately negotiated for in the purchase agreement. You have taught me that so well. I mean, I'm getting better in asking you questions on the assets. Stock sales don't throw me for quite as big of a loop because it is an actual equity ownership. You're buying the soul of the company. Exactly. So you get everything. You get everything. It's not actually. Yeah. And then I do find what we've seen, asset sales seem to be a little bit more common because of that. Because of, you know, you're purchasing, you don't want to necessarily purchase everything. Um, But Jennifer is right. And I would say that as well. In fact, we did just have a client that they are selling and the attorney reached out to us about That's the language. That's fabulous. You know? Now, is the language the can if Could I go pull another purchase agreement? It's the same language, different attorney, different client. Absolutely. So, you know, I like to... the. the the, I'd say that's so crucial because the sooner you can get an ERISA attorney involved and the sooner you can let your TPA know. I mean, we did just find out about this sale a couple of days ago and it's June mm-hmm. 30th, right? It's it's not at the forefront of somebody's mind. Mm-hmm. We understand this. Me and, me and OJ totally understand this. You're trying to sell your business or you're trying to buy a business. There's financial implications. There's what are we doing with employees? What Health insurance always seems to take the forefront uh, over the retirement plan, what are we going to do with our field? I mean, I, that's just 
on the surface, right? What are we going to do with how we're going to handle our clients? How are we going to communicate to our clients? And then at some point in some board meeting, this is what I envision. People are like, what are we doing with the 401k plan? This is literally what I envision. And everybody's like, oh, I don't know. Let's email Melissa. Let's email Jennifer. That sounds so hey, familiar. Jennifer, we're closing on the 30 and then we have a board meeting. <laughs> you know, so anyway, so that would be, you know, the sooner you can get an attorney involved for legal representation to review. The, I mean, that is an agreement. That is a legal agreement. It is binding. And if, if it's not in there, then you don't know what to do. Well, I mean, if it's an asset sale and it's in the, the 401k plan isn't specifically negotiated for in the agreement, it's staying with, it's the, staying seller. with the seller. Whether the seller wants it or not, yep. whatever, the, whether the seller knows that or not, you know, mm-hmm. um, so that we see that really common. Um, I would say, uh, Jennifer also, you know, if there's a mistake that, that does need to be corrected through the voluntary correction program. And I'll just explain what that is. My understanding of it. I don't, I don't actually do any of these filings because they're forms. Ugh. And I'm like, Jennifer, do this form. So that to me is, okay, oops, we found a mistake or somebody else found a mistake. You know, we've been allocating our profit sharing incorrectly or, yeah, we didn't know where our plan document was and this is just what we thought it said, but this is actually how we've been operating it. So to me, that's that's basically going to confession. I don't know if that's the best way that was, to put No, it. that was it's my admitting, exact. It's yes. admitting your guilt on the forefront mm-hmm. and sending it and how you corrected it. And it's a process. I mean, I would say... The one we're working on right now is for a nonprofit entity. And I mean, we've probably been, we probably have multiple conversations with them. We're probably in month three and we're just now getting to the point where we, the TPA can send Jennifer a lot of the information for you to begin to file. Then you have to file. And when you file, you pay a fee, of course. So you're filing with the IRS to say, this is how we screwed up. This is what we did to fix it. If you, you know, we made participants whole or, you know, whatever, whatever you have to do. And then you keep your fingers crossed until you get a response letter saying that they agree or disagree with your correction method, you know? And so you don't want to, I don't want to do that myself. You as a client or a plan sponsor, just, you do not want to do that yourself. I find the forms to be quite intimidating. I think having somebody, I say intimidating. Should I just say, I'm just too impatient to complete a form. That's fair. That's fair. Because it. In a lot of ways, they're tedious. They're tedious. Maybe that's tedious stuff intimidates me. You know, I'm big picture. But, you know, so, and also, Jennifer, you've worked with IRS agents before. And if you're really going with a true ERISA attorney that's had experience, most of the time, they might be like, oh, I know Bob. Like, let me, you know, like, I can get, not necessarily influence them, but get it pushed along. Or you have a contact, because God knows who wants to stay on hold with the IRS. Now, for expectation purposes... I would say the fastest I've seen one of those IRS VCP corrections get approved was six months. I did have, I did have one that was short. I've had one that was shorter and it was, it was like three months, but it was a very straightforward, just, they never had a plan document. We put a plan document in place. It was an owner only. Oh, okay. Yeah. That was the, that was the, um, that was the shortest one. And I've, I've actually got one in my bag that I just got today. I started that submission when I was in law school. Yeah. And I just got the closing agreement like today. I pretty sure one that you filed for us for a plan document error, it was two years. Yeah. It was two years. You kept following up, yeah. but it was two years. And 
you know, just to put it out there too, I mean, the IRS is behind on everything in terms of any, yep. uh, you know, we're part of CPA firm, mm-hmm. tax notices. Um, I mean, the COVID credits and all of that payroll stuff yep. and the ERCs. I mean, that's, it's just creating this just massive backlog. backlog. And they will tell you. Yeah. <laughs> I will tell you. They You will get a letter that's like, hey, we got your letter. Uh, 90 days might be the soonest that we get back to you. You know, so you just have to be patient. I just went to tax court recently for oh, the okay. first time for a client and we literally didn't have a choice because they had gotten the notice of deficiency. And when you get a notice of deficiency from the IRS, if you do not respond in that time frame and get acknowledgement, you lose your right to appeal their decision. And we got everything to the IRS, but they're so behind. She's like, it could be months. And it was, I had to go to the client and say, look, if we file in tax court, we preserve your right to appeal. If you ride this out, you may end up with the same resolution, but if you don't, you have, you base at that point, you have to pay the penalty and then argue with the IRS to credit it back. Yeah. So the the VCP submission, I think, is a really great program for from the IRS. Actually, the um, Employee Plans Compliance Resolution System, what we refer to as EPGRS, again, one of those super cool acronyms. Um, it is exactly like Melissa said, especially if you're Catholic, you go in, you go a confession, <laughs> you pay your Hail Marys. Yes, you pay your Hail Marys, but it's a lot cheaper than if you are sanctioned under audit because your sanction under audit will never be less than what you would have paid had you gone under a voluntary correction program. Right. And the durations of time that Melissa and I are talking about are actually very, con- not just contingent on backlog, but also contingent on how complicated your correction is. If your correction is one of those where you've just checked the boxes and it fits in the box, yeah. it goes a lot faster. These ones were that she's talking about were they were longer corrections. Typically it's because we're proposing something outside of the box and then you have to negotiate with the agent. And having relationships with the agent does pay off because I know I had a very difficult correction and the IRS really took a firm position on something and the agents switched mid-correction and the new agent came in and he got on the phone And he right away was like, I'm the new agent. This is how this is going to go. This has been going on too long. We're going to finish this. And he just took a real hard line with me. And I stopped and I'm listening to him. And I'm like, wait a second. Aren't you in Texas? He's like, yeah. I'm like, did I talk to you about two years ago and such and such? And he's like, oh, yeah. I'm like, yeah, I got you that thing back. I faxed it to you in between classes while I was in law school and I didn't take 21 days. So, um, changes his tune. <laughs> that might've been a little bit of an aggressive stance. I was like, well, and truthfully, like, okay. So I, I always kind of joke, like IRS agents are like any sort of, they're just humans like us. Right. And sometimes you're going to get the ones that are yeah. really going to want to work with you. Yeah. And they know that the client's already intimidated. But the other one's like, that guy, like, no telling what he just been through for the past six months, you know? And it's... He had just gotten this file and his manager was like, you're going to take yes. care of this. Gave him no backstory. Yes. And then, thankfully, I had that relationship with him. So he was able to take a step back and say, okay, bring me up to speed. What's really going on? Yeah. And... Yeah. I mean, those are the type of things that when you go with someone and look, 
I am I get as an attorney legal representation is very important. But sometimes your correction isn't super complicated and you probably didn't do it on purpose and you know uh it's it's just a mistake an enrolled retirement planning agent in a lot of ways can do just as good of a job filling out the paperwork and you know what's more important is that you do the correction yes because if you get that compliance statement and you're audited the irs cannot sanction you on that error because it's corrected and you've got the paperwork to do it so get it corrected whether it's an attorney whether you do it your Get it corrected. Yeah. Um, but as an attorney, we just, and I looked, completely lost my train of thought on that one. Well, I think <laughs> you were going with, to, to me, also, I just think that, it, this, I tell clients this every once in a while, right? Like, I get it. You have to pay us to provide a service, yes. right? There's fees that go along with it. And do I have to be the one to file your 5500 Not necessarily. Right. But you don't want to do it or spend the yes. time researching it. So there is value and we have to charge for the expertise that we are able to bring to the table and your relationships. Going back to the IRS agents, though, I've worked with several and they've all been very pleasant to me. You know, yeah. um, I'm that like kill them with kindness kind of thing. Yeah. Like, let me not go in and be aggressive. Like, you know, for me, and if, I just haven't had any sort of, I really haven't had any sort of issues. I'm sure there's, you know, just like anything, there's probably ones, some that are better than others. But I did have one call me about a 945 issue, and that's the tax deposits for your distributions uh, from 2016. Yeah, I think, I think you might have, I think you might have sent me that one. Yeah. We might have looked at that. I got one recently for a 5330 from 2016. Okay. I wanted to have a little statute of limitations conversation. Yeah. But uh, it was $63. So that one, honestly, I just paid it for my client. Yeah. This IRS agent, I was like, I think that they accidentally remitted their 941 payment as a a 945. 945. (laughs) And he was like, okay. Can you just file an amended 945 that there's no taxes due? Fax it to me and we'll call it a day. Yep. I was like, yes, we can do that. He's like, and I'll send no notice because I see where they're up to. I mean, he sent me the whole transcripts and everything. I was trying to get to the bottom of it. So he was very helpful because, I mean, without the transcripts of what's going on, of the transactions that's going on, we don't do payroll for this client, nor do we remit their 945. They're with a record keeper right now. They've been with a record keeper. Anyway, going on a detailed tangent. So, OJ, let's wrap up. Or Jennifer. Here we go again. Oh, didn't explain that. So Jennifer and I, um, we met, we had a lovely lunch one day and like within 10 minutes, I was like, I don't need to know anymore. When I, I was need- working for your, when I was working for your document provider. Right. She's working for one of our vendors. That's how we met. And, um, and like, I think we had originally, we probably had some, uh, initial discussions about Obamacare and Affordable Care Act. And you were very knowledgeable on that. And then you came to lunch. Mm-hmm. Like, I think, I think I met you twice. Yeah. Well, you had some, I think we came, I came with Brian and we talked about 403B restatements. Yes. And then the ninth, and then the ACA that, forms. Yeah. That went into the ACA and then he came down for lunch and Jennifer came. Hashtag love and Brian and Long. We, Shout out. Brian Long. Um, yeah. Yes, we love Brian Long, but I also love that Jennifer doesn't work for him anymore. <laughs> so that's that's so Jennifer does have a Sentinel email address and a Sentinel business card. There's a lot of times that she is 
part of the team and we are just billing the client straight out of Sentinel. And then there's other times that there's client confidentiality and that's discussed on mm-hmm. the front end that you do have your own consulting practice. So mm-hmm. long story short, no one in our office, when I was like, we're going to start working with Jennifer, but she's not an employee technically. When I would say Jennifer, literally I got like deer in headlight look from people in the office. Did you know the backstory to this lady? Okay. And there's like, literally, this is like the one CPA firm on the universe that has no other real Jennifer. We had no Jennifer's at the time. So people are trying to figure out who Jennifer is. So then I finally saying, started saying outsource Jennifer, which, I mean, I feel like I could have come up with a better word. But at the time, that's what came out of my mouth, which then got shortened to the initials OJ. That sounds for outsource Jennifer. And all of our partners call yes. her OJ and my entire team. What do you call her? OJ. 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 Yeah. Everyone does. I, I walk into the Christmas party and everybody's like, it's OJ. OJ. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I can't do much, but I mean, I can nickname the shit out of people. Yes, okay? you're, yes. Jeff was like, why are they calling you orange juice? I'm like, no, 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 not the juice is loose. It's all right. I've also gotten like OJ Simpson, but that's yes. not what I think about with OJ. No. I think I'm Jennifer. No. So anyway. Okay, so you do have your own consulting firm. I do have my own law practice, yes. So I have a number of TPA clients, such as yourself, where I provide either assistance with your own legal questions uh, if you're in the state of Louisiana and corrections work. Um, There are certain things, as Melissa said, where if we do need client confidentiality, we'll do the engagement under my, under my law firm. Um, But otherwise, if it's, it's easy, I prefer to educate because as I was telling my client, I, I would rather you use your money with me to make things better. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no reason necessarily for you, for you to pay me to do a voluntary fiduciary correction program and late deferrals. That's right. pretty easy. Right. 5330s are pretty reasonable. But hey, every once in a while, somebody wants the attorney to do it. But if I can educate the TPAs and how to help their clients do those easy corrections, saves everybody money and it gets things fixed, which is what is more important. Yeah, absolutely. So... Um, so yeah, most of the time the client comes to us first or one of our partners, you know, they're looking for an ERISA attorney and we send that referral out to Jennifer. It's been very, uh, paramount in our business and just kind of growth and being able to provide additional services together, you know, um, that it's been super beneficial to me and the the team over at Sentinel and honestly, Falcon Winkler. It's nice to have a, I like having an ERISA attorney in my back pocket. <laughs> so anyway, so that being said, thank you, Jennifer. Any other any other thoughts before we wrap up our longest TPA tidbits ever? Oh golly, no! <laughs> just ask for help. It's ne- the cover up is always worse yes. than the crime. Get help, whether it's from an attorney, whether it's from an enrolled retirement plan agent, or your CPA. Just bite the bullet, get it fixed. You'll feel better in the long run. And I can promise you that they've probably heard or seen worse than what you were about to tell them. Yes. You, you've you got to get up pretty early in the morning to tell me something where I'm going to stop and go, okay, yeah, that's a new one. Yeah. I mean, it happens, but you've I really got to put some effort into it. You said, oh, that's a new one. Yeah. That's a, yeah, that's a new one. But it, you, you're going to have to really try at it. And, and even if it is something like that, we can fix it. Nobody's... Nobody's dying. Nobody's going to jail in this world. So just get it fixed. Yeah, absolutely. So thanks, everyone. Uh, Once again, our contact information is on our website at www.choosesentinel.com. That's the best way to 
uh, find us. And we are on social media and LinkedIn posting, you know, um, articles, technical articles, and what we do at the firm, which is kind of fun. So thanks again.